You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. And we have another guest interview today. I'm excited to introduce you to Heather Chauvin. She is a leadership coach who helps ambitious, overwhelmed women conquer their fears and become leaders at work and home. Drawing from her professional experience as a social worker and her life experience raising three boys, Heather created a signature approach to help her clients create and enjoy sustainability, profitability, and ease in business and life. She is host of a podcast called Mom is in Control, where she reveals her most vulnerable truths about womanhood, marriage, parenting, living through stage four cancer, and running a successful business without burning out. She released her first book, Dying to Be a Good Mother in 2021. When Heather isn't busy driving her boys to hockey practice, <laughs> can you imagine? You can find her curled up on the couch next to her husband planning their next family adventure. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Allison, thank you so much. I'm excited for this conversation. I, um, it's so great to, to meet you after I feel like I've had a deep dive into your life. You're very, it's a very wonderful um, book, very well written, and you've had a very interesting life. You are the epitome of a survivor and someone who's learned some pretty great life lessons in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's, I call it, um, well, I always say parenting is personal growth on steroids. So it's like, you know, no time wasted. 
Can I share? I mean, because you published the book, I don't, I hope there's nothing that's too taboo that we can talk about here, but um, maybe you can sort of uh, share with our audience how you structured the book to follow your life and some of the important lessons that you learned. Mm. Yeah. So it's actually interesting because a lot of people, you know, dying to be a good mother, they're like, what does that mean? And I did a TEDx talk with the same title and I had no idea that I, you know, in my own life, I was dying to be good. And so everyone thinks it's a story about um, seven years ago, I was diagnosed with a stage four cancer. But previous to that, there was like all these things, you know, all the little stepping stones that kind of went up to that moment seven years ago. So the book is structured as a prescriptive memoir. I wanted them to read a story and not feel like they were listening to another um you know, parenting book and like how to be the best everything and how to do it all. So you're learning through my story as a professional social worker, but also as a mother who is raising three boys and who felt like she was failing and that she, you know, feeling lost and trying to like navigate my way through that. So there's, you know, there's the parenting piece, but then when I was diagnosed with cancer, realizing that that was, just a huge permission slip to be like, you need to implement and practice everything that you're doing. So I kind of take them through the journey of this is what happened and then reverse engineering all of it. And then leaving this, the end of the story with like, you're not alone, but also it doesn't have to suck. It doesn't have to be this way all the time. So, yeah. So when, before the stage four cancer, you already have um, a life journey that is one that is about overcoming hurdles. Like your, your clear drive and ambition Mm -hmm. is, is so clear to me, you know, being a single mom, um, having the the father be an addict that you had to consciously move away from to 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 stay healthy in your own life, to put yourself through school as you know pregnant and and with young kids. I mean, I just kept hearing this theme of drive and ambition and drive and ambition. Um, do you still see yourself as having drive and ambition? Yeah, it's definitely changed. And the interesting part is when I became a mother, I was 18. And before that, I had no drive and no ambition. As a teenager, I was very, um, you know, people would say unmotivated. I slept a lot um, because sleep was my drug of choice. And I didn't know that. I was a very anxious child and teenager. I had no idea how to manage, you know, the big emotions. But when I looked at my son, when I became a mother, I just thought, I never want him to feel the way that I did as a child or a teenager. And that was my drive. So he was my drive to learn and undo and kind of uncover. And when I was looking to like mainstream models of like, what is wrong? Like, why can't I figure this out? I'm educated. I'm, you know, I'm taking the workshops, I'm doing all the things. And then I realized that there was like this, you know, co-creation, this like conscious parenting that was new and I didn't hear about it before. But it's interesting because the drive piece, people think, you know, they're like, you're so ambitious, you're so this. And like, I had a really big why. And my why was I never wanted my child to feel the way that I did. But that only got me so far. There was a point, like a tipping point where, you know, I was acting to please him, to be better for him. 
And then it got to this point, you know, that was one child. And then I got married and had, you know, two more. So then I'm three children in, I leave my traditional job as a social worker. I decide I want to start a business with my own thing, which is a whole other can of worms. And then I'm sitting there going, now I have this drive and this bigger why, but I'm also burning myself out. And then when I was diagnosed, I'm like, I can't do it this way. But I already had the seed previous to that, that it didn't have to be difficult. You didn't have to be exhausted. You didn't have to be overwhelmed, but I didn't have the role models. I was looking around to all the other women and they're like, honey, that's just the way it is. Suck it up, buttercup. And so after my diagnosis at pre pre-cancer, I had nine years of this like self-discovery process. And then post-cancer, I was like, you know what? I'm done. You know, I can be driven. I can be ambitious, but I don't have to die while I'm doing it. I don't have to burn myself out. And so now I am, but it is a very different motivator. My lens is how good can I feel while I'm going after my dreams and making an impact? And there's a lot of inner work where before it was my identity and everything was for my children. And now I realize that you know, when I'm just like, Heather, it's okay to want what you want. It's okay to feel good. Um, it's shifting that why and that motivator and you feel so much more fulfilled. Yeah. So I, you know, one of the uh, reveals that you give in the book is that, that part of that, that early drive to be the best mom, the good mom, uh, the motivation there is around how it's so easy for us to have quiet, childhood burdens of somehow shame or or not having worthiness and that if we're going to find our value if we haven't had that laid out for us well when we become a mother it's not uncommon for moms to say this is going to be my value I, you know i am going to be the best mom ever for this other for this child yeah and of course, you know, we all want to be effective parents and we all want to have great relationships with our kids, but you can see how it can become uh, a burden when we start to say, I'm now going to make this my sole, pur-. like you little kid looking after you is going to be my sole purpose, which in a sense is if we say it that way, I, I say this to make it distasteful to mom so that they let go of it sooner. Um, it's kind of selfish because <laughs> yeah. it's actually all about us. It's all about, I need to fill my hole in my life that I didn't get some something somehow somewhere. And I'm going to make my life all about you, which is a, actually a burden on the child, isn't it? It's interesting that you say that because I've, I've thought that many, many times. I'm like, it's so selfish to think that not giving to yourself, like not creating that space, not saying, Hey, that doesn't work for me or no, I'm not doing that. Um, or how can, you know, like, this is everything I have on my plate. Who wants to take some of it? Oh, it's, it's just not going to get done or whatever that looks like for you and your family. But you know, I'm like, we, we need to use those critical thinking skills, like step back a little bit, you know, when you feel better, how does that impact your relationship? How does that impact your community? And something you just said too about, you know, the selfishness of like making it like, you know, your whole identity is motherhood. If you replace motherhood with your job, that's called workaholism, right? And you see people who are workaholics and you're like, whoa, like you need a life. Like you need to work a little bit or sorry, not work a little bit. You need to like take a break. But when you put motherhood onto that, all of a sudden there's this different conversation that you're having in your head 
And then, you know, it never stops. It never stops. And then you feel guilty for asking for support when you weren't meant to do it alone. And well, to your point, you know, that where are our role models? This is why your work is so important because we need women to take ownership of, of um, the wholeness of a person to which raising kids is one aspect, but so is being a community leader. And so is having hobbies and, uh, you know, so is keeping your marriage engaged and, and all these other things that we want to model to our whole children and not pass this burden onto our, our daughters, you know, and it took for you, it took cancer to stop you in your tracks. And some of those epiphanies came during that treatment where, you know, you said, for example, um, you, uh, you, you, I mean, really you had so much energy before when you don't have energy, when you can't, it's very different than, than I don't want to. Um, it's like you, you, you couldn't do it all and you did have to ask for help or people came around and helped. It was the first time you felt that sense of maybe I, maybe other people could help me out here. I could live within a community network. And that was a shift for you. Can, can you say more about that? Well, you said something about like having all this energy before, and I wonder how I accomplished a lot with no energy. And I think I was, it, I was running pre-diagnosis. I was living on fumes. Like I am now healthier than I've ever been in my entire life. And that is an interesting idea to me because culturally we have this narrative that the older you get, you know, the less energy you have or the, you know, your health starts to deteriorate. And I've don't live like that. I live the complete opposite where I'm like, what's next? How good can it get? And it's mind blowing to me because there's been levels of like evolution within myself where I, it's scary when you begin to get energy and you're kind of breaking through that barrier of, um, I have energy, something bad's going to happen. Like what's going on? Um, this isn't normal. And realizing that our identity is so attached to how we feel because externally people are saying, um, you know, certain things, but you, I was like, you asked, what was the original question? I'm like, I go on tangents. What was it? No. Um, so I was asking about this phenomena that, that, and I had it too, because I, I, listen, I wrote breaking the good mom myth, which was my book on the subject matter, because I think moms like you and I need to be in dialogue to convince more moms to change the way they're doing things. But I too am ambitious and high energy and, and overdriven and made a lot of these exact same mistakes and had to have my comeuppance. And it was very hard for me to learn the lesson that you learned during oh, yes. community. Oh, yes. community. Women need to yes. network and it's okay to say, could you pick up Tommy from basketball practice? And, um, you know, uh, I, I'm sorry, could I need the kids, someone to take the kids for the weekend because I just need to have two days to by myself to, you know, gather my thoughts and breathe for a minute or whatever. And um, gather your thoughts, not to clean the house. Not, right. I, I purposely, I was going to say it. And then I said, <laughs> I would not prescribe that. Um, but asking for help, we're so bad at it as, you know, um, air quotes, good mothers. Yes. Okay. So Here's the interesting part. The pod, my podcast is called Mom is in Control. And some people have a hard time with that. They're like, I'm not in control. What does that mean? I'm like, no, everyone wants control. That's what they think they want. They're like, I just need to feel in control. But here's the thing. When there's something inside of you that is not in control, which is most likely it's an internal conflict, right? Feelings, whatever that is. 
we seek external validation. So then we start to control the outside. That was me. I was white knuckling my children's behavior because I was running from this belief that I wasn't good enough coming into motherhood, already feel like I was failing because I was young, single, all of that. And I knew this, like I knew some of it, right? But I always had that narrative and story of like, no one else can do it better than me. And if they can, what does that mean? Because at my core, I am the mother, right? Like we are raised, like I am the mother. So if I, if somebody else does it better than me, I have failed as a human being. Like that's how it felt. And I remember just having to surrender and being like, okay, somebody else is going to raise my children for me during treatment. And that may be their father, my husband, um, I was going to say at the time, but we're still married, my husband, my in-laws, community members, all of that. And, you know, getting craft dinner in the house or whatever it is. And I remember like post-treatment coming home and just looking at the cupboards and being like, this is not my food. This is not my food. This is not my house. And I was angry, but I wasn't angry at my community. I wasn't angry at the people who literally just like showed up and took care of my family. I was angry at myself on a deeper level. Um, but yeah, I remember lying there in the hospital, literally treatment being injected into my body and having this sense of like, people care about me. Like I'm not alone. I thought, how awful is that? That I am literally on like my deathbed. And this is now when I feel a sense of community. And I'm like, how can I get this outside? How can I get this outside of disease? I do not want to associate feeling good and community with disease. And so I started asking myself, okay, how do you want to feel? I want to feel connected. I want to feel alive. I want to feel energized. And I was conscious about how I was creating that in my life post-cancer. I knew about it previous, but I wasn't living it. I wasn't embodying it. And so it completely changed every aspect of my life. And I can, I can say it was a shift, but even, even to, you know, the people that would come into my home or even in the hospital, I'm like, I want to feel alive and energized and their energy. They would treat me like I was dying. And immediately I'm like, you don't get to be here. You don't get to be here. And I have no fear of judgment right now because I have one focus and it is to stay alive. So yeah, you just get very intentional and that people pleaser that, um, you know, that the goodness, you know, I'm using air quotes that everyone wants you to be, it kind of disappears when you're really done with your own BS and you're ready to feel good while raising children. So I have a, um, a piggyback story. This is just, I feel during the pandemic, this thing that I just want to drive home to moms. Uh, and I think it, it it fits perfectly in with the, the lesson, life lesson that you're sharing right now. And that is this idea of, of our kids need to grow up in community. It's part of why we had a mental health crisis when we all got into lockdown and we were living in a nuclear family. And we have this romantic idea of the nuclear family from the 50s. And we think that's the proper way to live. And the truth is, that's really uh, modern and Western and, uh, and not mentally healthy that we are meant to live in communities in long houses, for lack of a better word, it looks a little different in our societies. 
But the fact that other people would look after our kids and whether that's a nanny, a grandma, an auntie, um, a nursery school teacher, a whatever, that, that there's many eyes on the child and there are many people to love the child. And there's many people who can change a diaper, get a sippy cup, feed them the craft dinner or whatever for kids to feel that many people can love me. Many people can help me. That's them feeling supported and like they're, they're always around a, a, a loving, caring figure, whatever that might be. And it's a beautiful thing. And so, you know, I, like you thought that no one could do it better than me. Same thing. Same. Same. I mean, I'm all that in a bag of chips. Come on. And then when I, <laughs> and then when I became a nursery school teacher, and I learned how much programming went into one day at a nursery school. I was like, oh my God, I have to get my kids into a nursery school because there is no way that I can give them all the things that these kids are getting in a nursery school classroom, right? So yeah. that was like a very eye-opening thing for me too. But I just encourage people to say, of course, we, we want to be our primary attachment and be great with our kids or whatever, but please expand your children's social interest to love many adults, to be in many relationships, to let many people care for them. You know, even just getting moms to say, you know, uh, the kid who demands, no, mommy, do my zipper. No, mommy, cut my toast. No, mommy, do my tuck in. It's like, no, you know what? Daddy gets a turn too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he, he can be one of your loving attachments as well and to not not give in to that, you know, kind of demand. So that's the end of my little, that's just been on my mind just so frequently during the pandemic that I just wanted to, to piggyback uh, on that. So so post cancer, as you're learning all that and you recover and you're, you're, you're getting healthier, but now, so now you've, you've left social work, which was also a, a giving profession that was sort of sucking you dry and, and you, you made this career pivot. So can we talk about your, th this new motivation, this new direction where the energy is and you're still busy and ambitious, but now it's it comes with fulfillment. Yeah. So that was actually very interesting because I, went into the profession wanting to help, wanting to make an impact. And I think we all go into something and we invest a lot of time, money and energy. And, you know, you're, you're, you're doing your thing and then you get in and you realize it's not what you thought it was. And nobody teaches us that nobody teaches to really listen to ourselves and to what I would say is pivot or course correct and be like, Oh, just make it your own. And that's okay. It's just a stepping stone. But I remember being in my work and having this feeling of not this, I, there's no way I could do this for 30 years. And, and then that followed with shame and this sense of failure, like, you worked so hard to get here. And then now you're like, oh crap, this isn't it. This isn't it. But I loved connecting with the children. Like I, one of my favorite things to do, and I don't do a lot of this today. I do it through the parents that I work with and the women that I work with. Um, I love connecting with children. I believe that you know, children's behavior is speaking to us. And if we can learn the language of understanding, like, what is this anger telling us? It's not personal. Like what's going on? And these children that I would say culturally society would label or write off or say are defiant, just so misunderstood. Like I loved him. Like give me a challenging child and I'm going to crack them open. Um, and I did. And people recognized that. But I knew that I couldn't do that within that system. And so I started leaving. And it was probably one of the most amazing 
terrifying experiences of my life because I was slowly, you know, I started teaching meditation and mindfulness to children. And so it was my son's friends that would come over. And then I remember going to um, a yoga studio and hosting a workshop. And then one day the local radio was at, I was at like a nonprofit place because I was too terrified to rent out any space. And the local radio station was there interviewing um, the organization. And, and I was like in the back, tucked in the corner, like doing my little free workshop. And I was like, okay, go up to him and just tap him on the shoulder and be like, you should interview me too. And he's like, why, what are you doing? And I'm like, Ugh, like just the courage to just do that. And I remember walking out and telling my mom, like, do you think I could do this full time? Like somehow. And it, it's what I call breadcrumbs. Like when you're really listening to what is that message or desire inside of you? And I just kept you know, one step at a time, one step at a time. And um, yeah. And then I started my podcast, which podcasts are interesting because it's been, you know, it's had its evolution of like ups and downs where people know what they are and then they don't, and then they do. But I think people just want to hear genuine uncensored conversations with real humans. And when I started my podcast, I felt like I was screaming to the world because I'm like, am I alone? Am I alone? Am I the only one out there who really cares, like wants to break these generational patterns? And it's, again, it's always an evolution, but it was scary to, to shift. Um, because I thought, what if I fail? What if I, you know, what if I'm just some, you know, weird woman who, who believes in something that other people are like, you're strange. And I couldn't understand why everyone was okay with status quo, why everyone was okay with feeling burnt out and exhausted and yelling as a parenting strategy. I'm like, yelling is a stress response. It is not a parenting strategy. You know, your children aren't not listening to you. Your children are human and just overwhelmed and anxious and all these things. And I'm like, there's a different way to be in the world. So yeah, just like anything else, when you're doing something different, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. And again, that reframe that that when you hear other people's stories that in the moment, it's so easy for us to be invested in something and to say to to make to pivot, to use a COVID word, Yeah, uh, you know, to pivot means somehow I've failed that we associate that with failure. But you know, I've worked, you know, 20 years in counseling. And when people usually come at a crisis point and it's an inflection point. There's usually something so not okay that the change has to happen. Um, people have different levels of suffering, but at some point it's this inflection point. And for me, that's like really exciting because inevitably I've now had 20 years of hearing how people change their journey and they get to this happiness, right? So it's like, oh, we're so afraid of failure. And I keep saying, but just on the other side of this is something so great. Why do we have to perceive it as failure? And even my daughter who switched universities, she said, at the time, she just saw it as like, how can I leave universities? How can I leave my program? I've, I've blown it. I've blown it. And it was like, no, you, you're, you're, you're learning about yourself and, and what turns you on and what environment you need to be in. And you are making an appropriate course correction with new wisdom. And if we could just view more things like that in life, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great? So which brings me to one of the other great things that you talk about in your book, which is the gift of the problem child. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
so much I want to say about this. I, I think I was the problem child. Um, I'm actually an only child, but I have three step siblings as well. So half the time I was an only child and the other half, I was the youngest of four. And, but and even in, in school, I was the child that was different or, you know, misunderstood. So I could empathize with the problem child. And I think that's why I like the ones that are, um, you know, the underdog and on so many levels, but, you know, I believe parenting is a deeply spiritual journey. I say it's personal growth on steroids. Our children are here to teach us and that child's, you know, will push your buttons, not intentionally, even though you think they are, um, to mirror back to you where you need to grow as a human. It has nothing to do with parenting. Parenting is, in my eyes, a relationship, like you, child, right? Relationship. And everything in life is a relationship. How you treat yourself, how you treat other people, your relationship to time, your relationship to your money, energy, like everything, you're in relation to everything. And this child's will trigger you. This child will drive you crazy. This child will get under your skin all the sayings that they do. But really it's what is, what are they showing you about yourself? And my boys are very, very different. Um, you know, the first one was really mirroring back to me, like, you've got to show up Heather, but you also need to know your inner world. Like you need to know why you're anxious. You need to know how to feel in control of your fear, your anxiety, your overwhelm. My middle son, um, like I remember he just came out of the womb, like ready to run. And I'm highly sensitive. And I remember he'd wake up in the morning and my first thought would be like, Oh no, like the tornado is awake. Like it was just overwhelming. So he really taught me, you know, that, problem, he really showed me like how to create that space for myself, especially in the morning. Like, how do I do this with a, with a very energetic toddler? And then my youngest is very quiet, highly sensitive, very creative. Um, if I even raise my voice, he's like, okay, okay. So he's never had to be, you know, that strategy doesn't work for him. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm like, what are you saying? Sorry for like complete night and day. But he taught me how to trust myself and how to really embrace my my creativity and those unique parts of myself. And each child, whether it's their behavior or, you know, putting them in a system of um, education or anywhere else, like in a box that they don't fit in. And someone else saying, you know, this needs to change about your child or that needs to change about your child. And um, and it's like you have to go back to your truth and your essence. Like, who am I? Who is my child? You know your child best, but ultimately your child knows your child best. And I think that's what our our role is as parents is to guide our children, like to keep them on track. Kind of like you were saying about your daughter, you're like, you found what lights you up. Like that's the next step on your journey and on your path. And I think we're just guides for our children. I'm not here to know everything. I don't. But if I can sit right next to them when they're having a bad day or when they have questions about something, that's all I need to do is like hold space and to guide and just say like, what path are you supposed to be on? But I think we're always trying to put them in molds and be like, you got to be this, you got to become this. You got to, you got to mold yourself to do this, that you don't fit in there. Like shift this, do that. And uh, it exposes a lot of exposes a lot of vulnerabilities within ourselves as well. So 
Yeah. Well, that I think it um, part of the 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 myths of motherhood uh, also come from some of those cultural boxes that say you know good mothers have their kids do extracurriculars and good mothers make sure that their kids are all A students and good moms make sure that their kids know a second language or go to Disney or, you know, or, 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 um, and, and that's not, that's not the case, but you know, we again buy into these cultural norms and feel like we're coming up short if we don't. So there is this pressure that we just need to let go of that external evaluation. Um, so because your book is not only your life journey and some of these epiphanies, but you also, because you're a coach, you also have exercises and there's like, a, you know, a, there's a, a real working self-discovery exercises and, and piece that goes in it. So um, can I get your like direct prescriptive advice here when you say that um, it's important for us to feel good as caregivers? How do we, how do we, how do you pull that out of people? How do you inspire people? And what, what do you recommend mm. they do? This is actually so intriguing to me because one, I think we know it, you know, we share those quotes on, on social and we're like, yeah, we know it, but how do you do it? And contrast and resistance are a beautiful thing. So contrast, it shows up in life of what you don't want. So I always ask people like, what do you want? How do you want to feel? Sometimes I hear one in the background now making noise. Sometimes we don't know because we're so used to, we're so like entrenched in what we don't want in our lives. So I'm like, the good news is you use what you don't want to find what you do want. So even if you don't have this big grand vision, which I find a lot of people don't have, what you do is write down a list of everything that is not serving you. You're like, not this, you're not this list. And then switch it switch it. I don't want to yell. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to feel like crap. I don't want like whatever it is, keep writing your list down and then switch it. What's the opposite of, I don't want to be anxious. I want to feel calm. I want to feel content. Great. And then once you flip your list, I want you to look at the common core feeling, right? People are going to say energized, peaceful, content, alive, fulfilled, whatever that is. And you have your buckets of your life. Yes, there's parenting. Yes, there's like, there's all these aspects of your life. Now you're going to reverse engineer how you want to feel. And I tell specific stories in the book about what it felt like when I was going through this journey. And there's one that I tell a lot, which is I didn't know what it felt like to feel, you know, people say, I just want to be happy. And I'm like, that's a loaded word. Like, what does that even mean? Right? Like that's unique to everybody. But I looked at people and it was typically men, ironically, it wasn't women that were inspiring me because they were like, looked happy, but they didn't feel happy. So I looked at people that kind of embody that energy and I would see people walking or, you know, have these hobbies. And I, first of all, I didn't understand why people just walked because my mentality was like, you got to run a marathon. Like if I'm going to go outside, I got to run. I can't just walk like that all or nothing. Like what's the point of walking? That's boring. But it was funny how my brain was conditioned to do that. So I'm like, okay, people are just walking. So I would start with, I'm just going to walk for 10 minutes a day. And then, you know, this was before Instagram was really big, but I had this vision in my head of, okay, people go to a cafe and they buy a really expensive latte and they're sitting there journaling. Oh, that feels so luxurious. 
So I did it as a woman, as a mother and my boys, I don't even remember who, who it was, but one of them was like really young. So I felt like I was leaving the house and I was abandoning my children. Like that's how it felt. And I sat there and I thought, okay, I'm going to feel so good. And I'm just going to write out my thoughts and I'm going to feel great. And I cried the whole time. I sat there and I cried and I felt so guilty and it was a local cafe. So there's all these people that I knew. And every time I'd see someone, I'm like, oh, I just can't be here right now. Like I was supposed to, this was supposed to feel good. And I was angry because, and sad because I, I wanted to feel good. And I was like, I thought I was doing the thing I was supposed to do. But then I realized just like anything else. And I have a cup in front of me and there's coffee in it. But I'm like, if your cup is full of coffee, you can't fill it with water. I could pour water in it. And then what's going to happen is the coffee is going to come out. My cup, me as a cup was filled with guilt, was filled with overwhelm, was filled with anxiety. So as I was trying to pour into myself, I had that had to come up and out first, like a detox. It had to come up and out but I wanted the good feelings. I wanted them so bad. And I tell that to people all the time. It's not that you don't know what to do. It's that doing it, especially in the beginning is wildly emotionally uncomfortable. And I also like to reframe like, you know, saying we can do hard things. I'm like, okay, we live in a culture that is addicted to hard We live in a culture that's addicted to burnout and busy and all of these things. So if my brain is trying to find, I can do hard things, I can do hard things, everything's going to feel hard. But I'm like, what is hard? I'm like, it's actually just emotionally uncomfortable. So I reframed it to, I can do emotionally uncomfortable things. So now I know that if I'm stepping into new territory and I allow myself to get emotionally uncomfortable, right? Sit in that cafe I'm sitting there with my emotional discomfort. I'm actually growing and I can do emotionally uncomfortable things. And then I translated that into, you know, your child's having a tantrum on the floor and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be non-reactive. Like, yeah, I got a lot going on inside of me while that's happening, but I'm going to sit with this instead of yelling and screaming and, you know, just projecting that and really learn about myself. And so That is the uh, long answer to where do we start? Because it is, it's not easy. No. And, and um, so, because you also say that that's that finding that calm um, amongst the inevitable chaos of family life is a skill set that we need to put some, some time on. So you do meditating, you do yoga. What, what are some of your other (laughs) skills that you use yourself and teach the uh, moms that come into your coaching practice? Yeah. So I, you know, meditation was my first in and I have found like, I'm a wildly, um, I'm not a routine person, which people think is very interesting. I'm not a checkboxer. I'm not a everyday needs to be the same. And as I grow, my tools change and evolve. So It depends on where you are on your journey, but you just pick one thing and just start like be very consistent at the beginning until you feel that crack happen, like until you feel the crack open. But there's something that I teach in the book in depth. And I talk about it a lot in my coaching, which is energetic time management. And it's essentially reverse engineering how you want to feel. It's 
it was kind of the collaboration of all of the personal development that I was learning, but I needed a strategy post cancer to really get me, you know, focused on living rather than how crappy do I feel today? Poor me, poor me. So kind of taking what we talked about, what's the feeling that you want, right? You want to feel calm. You want to feel peaceful. You want to feel all those things. That's your focus. That's your lens for your week. That, so that's a very, just to cut for, for parents listening. So that's a real, that's a shift from what we typically hear, which is like goal setting. I want a clean kitchen when, and you're sort of saying, no, how will you feel when your kitchen is clean? Yeah. Go for the, go for the feeling state is the goal, not the goal goal. Have I got that right? Yeah. And yeah. it's, and it's, yeah, it's like, why, what's the feeling you want? And guess what? You don't need to clean the kitchen all the time. Like other people can do this too, but here's the interesting part about that. When I felt emotionally uncomfortable, like pre, you know, early days, a messy kitchen would drive me nuts. Like I would get so angry when I would enter that kitchen. Now I can enter the kitchen when it's not, you know, perfectly clean and it doesn't bug me. Yes, I'm probably still carrying some load of like, oh, I need this to be, you know, clean and clutter free, but I wasn't so controlling about it having and then angry about it. So the more I started implementing this process, and maybe we think it's the kitchen. Okay, great, if that's your thing. But if you want your kitchen to feel clean, what other parts of you don't feel clean, right? And I'm looking at my my mind and my body. And I'm like, I don't feel clean in my body. Like, and it wasn't just about taking a shower. It was like the food I'm putting in my body doesn't feel clean. I'm not drinking enough water. Um, my mind is definitely not clean. So I would start to like write down the stories that I was telling myself. And then ironically, it's like cleaning up your social list, right? Cleaning up the people you're surrounding yourself with. So then you have this lens of clean, energized, comfortable. And, you know, I've been at it for seven years post-treatment, really focused on this. And people are like, yeah, you know, I, I did it for like a month and I felt really good. And I was like, listen, it's a practice. This is like, it's the same thing as like a yoga practice or anything else. I'm rinsing and repeating, rinsing and repeating, and it's constantly changing and evolving. And I can honestly say now, I don't remember Maybe I was wondering if I say this out loud, my children would be like, yeah, right, mom, you're a liar. Um, <laughs> I want to say, I don't remember the last time I raised my voice. And in the last year, in the middle of a pandemic, maybe on one hand, I can see how many times I raised my voice and I know why I did it. I know why I did it because I was stressed. I was overwhelmed and which I'm human. These things happen. And when I do that now, my children look at me and go, are you okay? Like, what's going on? And instead of being defensive and being like, don't call me out, I go, thank you. Thank you. Because when that's happening for them, I'm like, what's going on? Like, let's figure this out together. And so you start to be more proactive in your life rather than reactive. And that, that was, I'm a meditator as well and have been for years. And I think that, I, and I recommend meditation. People are so hesitant or they think it's so woo woo or it's not for them or they misunderstand what it's about. Um, but my, they want to clear their brain, get rid of all the thoughts. I'm like, yeah, ah, sometimes no. you get more. <laughs> no, it's not about it. It's so, it's so misunderstood, um, by the public. Um, but you know, we, the, the science there about learning that, that going back to your, your, um, 
your strategy for parents that if we have a goal that's around what feeling state do I want to be in when you start to realize how much control you have of your affect and feeling it's an yeah. inside job and so it it's not the outs you lose control when you make it about the outside environment when you realize that oh like I can decide that feeling peace, I can feel peaceful in the middle of a dirty kitchen. That's something I have agency and control over. Um, And that I don't have to get hooked on how the kitchen should look or whatever. And, uh, you know, and then a million other examples about how we use the learning and the practice off the cushion and out into the bigger world for parenting and, and, you know, being able to have common chaos while a child's having a tantrum. Uh, and not having that need to be reactive when we get flooded with thoughts of, you know, good mothers don't have kids who have meltdowns, which is, you know, a BS thought, but it, it, it comes up. Um, it's just, it's, it's so powerful. So if, if anyone here is still sitting on the fence about meditation, you've got two people here <laughs> saying, please check us out again. Please try one more time. Yeah. And I actually find um, when I started, so I never started meditating for myself first. My actual first product <clears throat> that is no longer available was teach your kid to meditate because I'm like, he needs to do it. He needs to do it. And then as I started doing it with him, I was like, oh crap. I need to do it too. And together. And it was always easier to teach children about mindfulness because they are so connected to it. But it was our vision of what that looked like. And maybe it's a minute a day. Like you maybe for you, you're like, I can't start on a cushion. Maybe it's a walking meditation. And to this day, you know, when I can feel a lot going on, sometimes I'm just popping something in my, my headphones and while I'm doing dishes or while I'm walking around the yard or, you know, the kids are around me, but my, my vibration is changing. And I think it's really important to realize, you know, at the core, like you matter, like your energy matters, how you enter a room matters. We know, we know we can feel other people's energy, right? We all know this, but then there's something that happens when you're like, I, it, I just don't matter. Like nobody really sees me. Nobody, you know, will it really make an impact if I don't do this? And I tell people all the time, it's, you know, if you can't start doing something for you, do it for your children, do it for like, do it for somebody else. I am so impact driven that everything that I do, people are like, you have so much time for yourself or you do this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if you only knew the mental game I have to play with myself to get me to do certain things that are life enhancing, that are going to help me feel better. I have to like, think of that person or that woman who sent me a message or, you know, my mother who just went through back surgery and doesn't even have the privilege of being able to do a workout with lifting weights or, you know, those YouTube videos that you see with people, no arms and legs who are like lifting 300 pounds. And, oh, there's one coming in the door right now. One second, buddy. One second. I'll be right back. Nope. Close the door. Uh-uh. Um, so yeah, it's amazing to just really dig deeper within yourself. We have to stop using the excuses that we don't have time, we can't because of our children. And a minute a day can change your life and it's going to feel like nothing. And it's going to turn into two minutes a day and 10 minutes a day. So, you know, if you can't do it for you, do it for your children's future. Because, you know, a lot of times everyone's waiting for something to change outside of them, a bigger power at B. And I'm like, I'm just going to start with me and my world changes because I change. 
Can I just ask you about how, how you juggle this all here now? You've you've got so many skills in this area, but here, you know, you're, you did your kids do online schooling? You work with your husband. You've got family work. How do you find that um, sort of space and energy in, in this <laughs> compact world you're living right now? Yeah, so my it's actually was interesting because my husband works within the company and so he doesn't work outside of the home. But I told him, you know, in the last year plus, he consciously created the space to kind of be on the education front. And I said, if you weren't here, two things would have happened. Um, I would have had to allocate budget to have somebody in the home all the time because I refuse to give up my business and my work because it brings me joy. And obviously you and I, the last year, the world needed our message more than ever. Two, if something, you know, if he wasn't present or I didn't have the capacity Um, there would have been no education or there would have been home education. So there was many different things that went on. But the interesting part was towards the end of the year, I I remember interviewing a few people and a lot of healthcare, um, mental health professionals. And a lot of them, I said, what are you doing with your own children? They're like, oh, we've opted out or, you know, we did it our own way. And I'm like, okay, these are professionals who are in the mental health field who have opted out of this and just said, no, it's not happening. And towards the end of the year, we're getting more and more emails from the teachers of like, this isn't handed in and this isn't. And I said, you didn't even start the conversation with how is your child doing? So so you've already lost my respect. And I would watch my clients um, struggle with this and burn themselves out. And I said, why? Why are you taking this on? And, you know, you like not even that, it, everything else around you is crumbling. It's one thing to say, you know, this is giving me joy and it's in alignment. It's another thing to say, this is incredibly stressful and I can't do this. And I said, nobody asked you to, you opted into this. It's unrealistic. It's not practical and it's not sustainable. So um, it looked different at different seasons, um, but I opted out of a lot of it and I had to, I don't even want to say have uncomfortable conversations, but have eye to eye contact with people who had expectations of who I needed to be in the world. And the second I opted out, I could see this like, I don't want to say it was either permission, anger or resentment, like resentful that I had the ability to give myself permission because they did it, but I could see their burnout being projected onto my children. And I said, no, that won't happen. So my goal in the last year plus was to allow my children to feel love, safe and secure. And that's always my goal. And if I'm like, my children feel loved and safe, my job is complete. I don't need to check all the requirements off. Yay. And, you know, again, just giving parents permission to, we want them to write their own permission slips, but somehow they like to hear it from the authors and the coaches and the social workers and the mental health professionals. So if you're hearing it from us, write that permission slip for yourself, Um, you know, uh, get clear on your values and let the stuff that's not serving you go. Um, You know, mental, we know that the pandemic is, was a, a health crisis, but then this mental health crisis coming in, in a wave behind it is, is serious and true and, and take it serious and do what you need to do. And even if that's, feels like for the first time in your life you feel like you're the salmon swimming against the grain now's the time you know do what your family needs let me give you the final word is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners um 
know, and, and then we'll um, give you an opportunity to, to find where else can people find you? Yeah, I just, I want one, I just really, really appreciate this conversation because I think we've hinted about it a few times that the more we openly talk about the reality of who we want to be and how we want to feel and what success really looks like. And I'm using air quotes. I I believe that's what gives people permission to choose the path that they want on. And I truly believe at my core now that the better you feel your mind, your body, your soul, uh, it takes time. It takes consistency. It takes dedication, but you're living your life already. So you might as well just make it a journey um, and figure it out. But the better you feel, that is exactly what the world needs from you. Um, That's the secret everybody's looking for. Um, Do the work, spiritual entertainment. You know, you can listen to the podcast, you can read the books, but unless you're doing the work and getting uncomfortable, nothing changes. So if you're feeling like I'm doing it all, but nothing feels different then invest in yourself, um, let go of what is no longer working, declutter, become a sun, you know, just get focused on one area of your life if you're incredibly overwhelmed. And when you start to shift that area of your life, everything else will shift. And then the next step will be revealed to you. The domino will go. Wonderful. Thank you for your wonderful contribution. Just so um, I'm going to put up in the show notes, but there's your podcast. Repeat the names of your yeah. podcast, your book and your website. Now, I will put it in the show notes, but just say them out loud here. Yeah. So the podcast is Mom is in Control. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. The book Dying to Be a Good Mother sold anywhere online and it's on audibles as well and Instagram at Heather Chauvet. And I love when people listen to the podcast and then send me a message. I'm a real human. So yeah, connect there. Wonderful. I'll put those all in the show notes. Thank you so much for your work and for your time today. Thank you, Allison. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.